Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Detour. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. The subject of today's conversation is the fact that right now, as I speak, 20 million people in four countries are at risk of starvation. The UN is calling this the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. But despite those staggering numbers, those frightening descriptions, and opinion polls, only 15% of Americans are actually aware that this crisis is happening. And, you know, I don't raise that to blame anyone. It's not their fault because this has also been called the least reported but most important major issue of our time. So I want to do my small part to address that information gap today in my conversation with David Miliband. David is the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. You've seen him before. He was United Kingdom's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and a member of parliament for a very long time. He's a brilliant guy. And in our conversation, we talked about the fact that the small silver lining here is that this famine isn't because of forces outside of our control. This is not the weather. This is not an act of God. A lot of this suffering is a direct result of wars and conflicts that can be ended. So we spent our time talking about what's happening and what we all can do financially, politically, to help people who desperately need it. So I hope you'll share this episode with your friends because... There's some good news in that poll I referenced earlier, which is the fact that once people learn about this crisis, especially young people, they care a lot and they want to help. And if we all do this together and get engaged and do our part, we can actually make a difference. So thank you again for tuning in. David Miliband, thank you so much for joining me here today in lovely Burbank, California. Thank you, Tommy. It's good to be with you. I really do appreciate it because this is a crisis that you've been spending a lot of time working on that I think has has not gotten a lot of coverage. So let's start with some facts. 20 million people are at risk of starvation in Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, Nigeria. The UN has called it the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. What happened? How did things get so bad so quickly? So four countries have been consumed by growing levels of violence. South Sudan is the world's newest nation. It became a nation in 2011 after five years of something called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, mm-hmm. and it's fallen into conflict between yeah. the government and the rebels. Um, in northeast Nigeria, Boko Haram has terrorized the local population. Two and a half million are displaced. Some of them are living under Boko Haram uh, rule. Uh, the third uh, country, Somalia, you and uh, some of your listeners will know it well, a 30-year civil war, essentially, and grave difficulties of humanitarian organizations like our own uh, trying to get uh, help to people. And then Yemen uh, has crept up on people, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. It's 25 million people in the country, uh, 20 million of them in humanitarian need, 90% of them dependent on uh, food that comes through the Hodeida port, which is under threat of bombing mm-hmm. from a Saudi-led coalition, but including the U.S., which the U.S. supports, yeah. the US, uh, is supporting a bombing campaign that's been going on for two years against a so-called Houthi rebel movement, which now has Iranian backing. So the facts are that famine is being declared for the first time in six years in South Sudan. It's being threatened for 20 million people. And all of these are man-made famine threats because of war and violence. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, they are the 
if you like, the tip of the iceberg of a global situation in which war and displacement is consuming more people, mm-hmm. 25 million refugees, 40 million internally displaced in places like Syria as, as well as the, the places that you've uh, mentioned. And I think three things are going on, essentially. One is that a growing number of states, places like Yemen and uh, South Sudan, are unable to contain political and ethnic and religious difference within mm-hmm. peaceful boundaries. Uh, secondly, the international system is at best weak and divided and at worst complicit in the growing violence. And third, and very difficult to talk about, growing numbers of um, Muslim-majority countries are riven by violence, Afghanistan and Syria, but also Muslim minorities in places like Central African Republic or in in Burma, Myanmar, are being terrorized by the local population. And so that's why we talk. The UN is talking about the gravest humanitarian catastrophe since World War II. Can you define the term famine? Yeah, there are, famine is what's called level five on the international definitions of mm-hmm. food insecurity, and famine means that you're there's a threat to your life uh, from lack of food. And of course, the the thing that you understand, I was in South Sudan just last month. Lack of food doesn't get you; ill health will get you. Right. And that's why we in the International Rescue Committee always try and bring our health and our nutrition programs together mm-hmm. because in the end, you've got to staunch the illness as well as provide the food, the plumpy right. nut that actually keeps people alive. Right, right. I mean, I think people in the United States, well, we're talking a lot about Africa today. I mean, and I think very little makes the news in the United States. It's about Africa generally, despite the fact that it's a continent. It's, it has, you know, incredible economic stories incredible challenges in places like Somalia and in other places you mentioned. What I think is so stark about this crisis is that this isn't just the result of drought or natural disasters. This is a man-made famine. I was hoping you could help people understand that because I think when we think about ways we can help as individuals, I want to figure out not just how we can donate money and assistance, but also if there's political pressure we can put on governments to try to stop some of these conflicts. Well, I think that's a really important uh, point. It is the first time in six years that the UN have declared a famine. A uh, famine doesn't get thrown around mm-hmm. easily in the in the technocracy and in the bureaucracy, and these are clearly linked to civil wars. Yeah. And what's happened since the end of the Cold War is that the number of civil wars has grown precipitously, and their length has grown as well. And in a way, the Cold War was this organised standoff in which most countries went to one side or the other, but a mm-hmm. large number were neutral as well. I mean, the group of 77, the G77, mm-hmm. was created in the middle of the Cold War for the countries that would remain neutral. But it was an organized standoff. What you have at the moment is a disorganized world, essentially, where there are – some people say it's a leaderless world. In fact, there are lots of leaders, and lots of them are doing their own thing, and the international system is not holding them within laws even of war. Right. And that's why civilians are being targeted. That's why aid workers are being targeted. That's why food is not getting through. Um, and that's why the, the laws of war that were established after the Second World War are not being upheld. Yeah. And that's why bombing campaigns are hitting civilians, whether in Yemen, where half the hospitals have been knocked out, uh, previously in Sri Lanka, in the Jaffna Peninsula, when Tamils were targeted in Syria. We've, my own organization had eight uh, hospitals bombed last year. Wow. And that's why when I talk about a weak and divided international political system, the second reason why this is happening, that's what happens. Right. If you're not upholding international law, then new depths are plumbed. And my experience is that when de- depths are plumbed, they cannot be unplumbed. Right. Sorry to speak in such an ugly way no. about it. But it's, 
I think it's serious. And that's why your point about political pressure, I have actually been struck on the Yemen issue, how uh, senators actually on the Republican side, as well as on the Democratic side, have been willing to call out what's going in, on in Yemen, because the truth is, it's not quote unquote working. Yeah. There isn't a winner in the no. uh, Yemen war. And I actually attended a meeting that was called by Saudi and other foreign ministers at the UN nearly two years ago, where they were, they were saying, look, we've got to have a political settlement. Right. I, I know it may have become a cliche, this quote-unquote political settlement point, but I think it's really important. Wars rarely end, civil wars rarely end with one side quote-unquote winning. They yeah. end when there is a political agreement to share power. And look, there's relative peace in Lebanon, because after 15 years of war, they decided that every community would have a stake in the political system. Yeah, I think that our inability to get a political solution has been the hallmark of conflicts in Afghanistan and more recently Iraq, or again in Iraq. But I guess back to Yemen, I spent so much time in meetings and conversations about Yemen when I was at the White House and on the NSC. A lot of those policy discussions were run by a guy named John Brennan, who was head of counterterrorism and uh, Homeland Security for Obama. And, you know, I know John well. His He deeply cared about the situation in Yemen. He cared about the people. He loved the country. He'd spent time there. Mm. But he's an Arabic speaker, I think, as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, now and he he's went a to real run public servant. Yeah. And, and but it's interesting that, you know, the framework for so many of those conversations were about Al Qaeda and counterterrorism. But when you look at the situation now, there's 20 million people need humanitarian aid. 330,000 are suffering from a cholera epidemic. Mm-hmm. It's a humanitarian disaster and a tragedy. And like you were talking about earlier, there are these Houthi separatists who are backed by Iran. You have the Saudi government backed by the U.S. and other Gulf states leading a coalition against them. In the middle of it all, you just to round out the nightmare, we have al-Qaeda. Can humanitarian aid and assistance help in Yemen, or does the international community do need to do more to intervene? You need both. I mean, the truth is we've got a team of, of Yemenis. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things about international humanitarian aid organizations that people don't understand is that they think it's Western aid workers jetting in for six weeks and then a week's R&R. No, we have a Yemeni-based team. There's about 150 of them. They're working in nine uh, provinces. And I defend humanitarian aid, which is independent, impartial, and really is about helping uh, people survive whatever side of the conflict they are on. Equally, I don't think we should be afraid to say you need more than human I don't like to call it band-aids but you need more than humanitarian intervention to keep people alive mm-hmm. you need a political engagement political and diplomatic engagement and Yemen's tragedy for a long time has been that it I used to be a member of parliament in the UK and um, as it happens my constituency had the oldest Yemeni community in Britain. I really? represented a seaside, a seafaring constituency called South Shields in the northeast of England. And in 1894, a group of Yemeni merchant seamen uh, came to South Shields and they never left. And their descendants are still there. Right. They're part of the community. I've never been to Yemen, tragically, myself. But th- this is a country that has always been the victim of other people's wars. It's a bit like Lebanon. Mm-hmm in a way. It's also a, a country that has uh, strategic value. If you look at a map and you see where Aden is, you can see why yep. it's got uh, strategic importance. And I think that John Brennan's concern with the anti-terrorist element is completely understandable. I mean, that was his job. And it's right to see al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as part of this equation. But what's going on at the moment is not just a fight against al-Qaeda. It's a much broader argument, which I'm afraid the Iranians are tweaking the Saudi tail. Mm-hmm. The Emiratis have lost over 50 soldiers for the first time uh, ever. 
But I don't see a political settlement any closer. And I think you have to ride both horses, both the humanitarian horse and the political diplomatic horse. More nerdy foreign policy coming up on Pod Save the World. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. There's been this major leadership change in Saudi Arabia recently. I have zero clue about what the implications could be. Do you think that – is there any hope we can take from that? Is there any well, thing you've I think seen so far? There are two things that I would note from the outside. One is that there is a lot of substantive and important talk about, quote-unquote, modernizing the Saudi Arabian economy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think one should dismiss that. Right. I mean, there is a globalized middle class in Saudi Arabia that sees the way of the world and is part of the world. And frankly, that is the hope for a lot of people. And uh, the now the crown prince represents a lot of mm-hmm. that. And those who talk to him, I haven't met him, uh, would uh, will tell you that there is something really important going on. Then there's a second thing, which is what's how does Saudi Arabia fit into a new Middle East? Right. And that's a different right. story. Right. 
I don't have a lot of good things usually to say on the show about the Trump administration, but his ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said about this famine, this is a crisis that should be leading every newscast and on the front page of every newspaper. She was trying to break through uh, to the public about this alarming crisis. Eight humanitarian agencies have come together for the first time ever to launch an appeal asking Americans to help them fight famine. But it doesn't seem like we're there yet. The international community, I read that we've gotten less than half of $6.27 billion that's needed to head off the yeah, famine. 35% only. 35%. Less than 20% of Americans know that a famine has been declared. Right. Well, which is another interesting thing. You did some polling where 15% of Americans are aware that this is happening. But once they learn about it, it shoots to the top of their priorities list. In well, terms certainly of for millennials, 78% of them say they want to do something. It becomes top of their priority list. Our hope is that the younger generation and their grandparents, interestingly enough, who are, who are the next hmm. part of the population who turn knowledge into concern. Uh, that, that's the hope. And we, in the UK and elsewhere, the aid agencies have structures for joint appeals. In the US, that's never existed. So for the first time ever, eight agencies, including the IRC, have come together to say, look, this needs global attention, but it needs American attention. Mm -hmm. And we've got our work to do. Right. Because in the media cacophony, Yemen, northeast Nigeria can seem too far away to care. My point is that there's an argument for the heart and an argument for the head. The argument for the heart is literally your money right. is going to save lives. <laughs> I mean, there couldn't be anything more heart-rending than that. But strategically, if Yemen, northeast Nigeria, Somalia go to hell, that has implications in an interconnected world. Don't right. tell me that there isn't a geostrategic argument as well as a humanitarian argument. Right. Look at Syria. Exactly. Now, and don't tell me that um, an America which turns its back on significant parts of the Muslim world doesn't give an easy argument for people to whisper in the ears, look, America will never have your back, but we, some extremist group, will. Right. So if you're listening, what should you do? What could I do right now to help? I mean, the best thing in the Global Emergency Response Coalition, go to the website, donate, okay. because that will make a difference now. And you've got eight, eight agencies who've got people on the ground. And frankly, it's, uh, we can do more if we have more money. So donate today. Donate today. Please go to Global Emergency Response Coalition and donate. Second thing that I think is important is that the voices of young Americans who want to continue to enjoy the blessings of globalization, who want to enjoy the blessings of an open world, need to say that this country, I now live and work in New York, the International Rescue Committee was founded by Albert Einstein in New York in 1933 when the world needed America and yeah. didn't get American yeah. help for another nine years. Use your voices to say to people in Congress on either side, and frankly, it's important to make this argument to Democrats because I can tell you from the UK, there'll be an argument to Democrats to say, Look, focus on the home front. Forget all this foreign stuff that yeah, you yep. care about. Make the argument to Democrats or Republicans that you cannot have the blessings of globalization unless you're willing to bear the burdens of globalization. And one of those burdens is to provide international leadership on diplomacy, on aid, on international humanitarian law. So I worked on the NSC. I was a spokesperson. and I worked on campaigns where the goal is to try to move public opinion, sell an argument. If you're a millennial who learns about this issue and you care a lot and you have to make the case to your 55-year-old dad who maybe doesn't care quite as much. What's the best argument? Like, How do we root this conversation in, in facts and values, as you said, don't feel far away or don't feel removed from us? Well, I, I think that a dose of humility from me, if I was so clever, maybe I'd still be in politics, <laughs> if I was so good at selling uh, the argument. Politics um, is not so, rational. We've learned that. <laughs> I think that two things are really important. You say to your 55-year-old dad, 
who are we? The generation of, if you're a millennial, your grandparents' generation saved the world. Appropriate, given the title of this uh, (laughs) podcast. And I think it's right to say, who are we? In a world where Uganda, $962 per head per year, is welcoming a million refugees, who are we to say we can't have 85 thousand, which was the minimal number that President Obama allowed to come in uh, this uh, year. So the first argument is, who are we? Who are we to say that when average income in the US is $57,000 a year, however pinched the circumstances are, that we're not able to support people who've got literally nothing? But the second argument, I think, is that in a connected world, which millennials are enjoying, we will not be able to maintain that connected open world if we do not guard the global commons if we do not stand up for international humanitarian law. And I think there is an argument that the open economy will not be maintained if we have closed politics. I've said before that the danger is that the fourth quarter of the 20th century was defined by pulling down walls. And the danger is that the first quarter of the 21st century is about putting walls back up. And I don't just mean the physical wall that is going to exist right. in President um, Trump's mind more uh, higher and more beautiful dreams, yeah. um, b- between North America and South America. I also mean there's an amazing quote from Willy Brandt, who was the mayor of Berlin at the time of the Berlin airlift, who became chancellor of West Germany. He said, walls of the mind can sometimes last longer than concrete walls. And that's a danger too. So we, we, there's a fight on to make sure that the first quarter of the 21st century is not defined by building walls, both of the mind and in reality. You made the point in a recent speech where you talked about how the, the cost of keeping a refugee out can be much greater than the cost of allowing one in. Can you talk about what you meant by that? So the uh, I represent an organization which was uh, – I lead an organization which was set up to help refugees and displaced uh, people. And we help them in two ways. One, we give humanitarian aid in countries like Jordan that has 650,000 refugees, in countries like Uganda that has a million, uh, countries like Turkey, 2.7 million. Uh, But we also say that America's determination to be a leader in refugee resettlement, allowing 85,000 people to come in, has substantive value because 85,000 lives are changed. They're given the chance to start a new life. But there's also a symbolic benefit that a message goes out that this is a country that's not going to turn its back on people who are suffering persecution, whether they come from Cuba or Russia or Syria or wherever. This is a country that's going to uphold international law and international norms guard and defend those. And my argument would be that the cost of allowing them in, actually, people who know the price of freedom will defend it to Mm -hmm. the death. You've got three and a half thousand Muslims in your American military. You've got refugees who've made their lives here and become Secretary of State or founded Intel in the case of Andy Grove, who are incredible contributors to this country. So I don't like to think of refugees arriving simply in terms of cost. But if you keep them out... You don't have to take my word for it. Former CIA directors have said, if the word goes out that we're keeping you out because you're a Muslim, then that has long-term strategic cost. It actually hinders the fight against international terrorism. Yeah. Shows up in a lot of propaganda. You know, I try not to be too partisan on this show, but it, it's hard for me not to just sort of state the fact that when you see the State Department getting gutted, when you see foreign assistance by the United States getting gutted, or at least proposed to be gutted, that's going to have an impact not only on the ground, but in, in the cost of abdicating our leadership on these issues. Have you seen any real world implications? And I don't know, I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. I mean, I, the first thing I would say is that I sat opposite the US Secretary of State. I was the UK 
Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. And the quality of your diplomacy is undoubtedly matters. You set the benchmark for global attitudes and engagement. People, everyone else wants to know where are the Americans on issue A, B, C. And if there isn't a position, then that creates a vacuum. Yeah. And that's the danger, to be honest, that the, the fact that there aren't assistant secretaries of state for Africa at the yeah. moment means that where, where is the American position on the South Sudan right. Right. question? And I know that the new administration has said national security is going to be the defining driver. So the danger is that somewhere like South Sudan doesn't qualify because in the end, quote unquote, who cares what happens in South Sudan? That's the danger if there's not a national security justification. My point would be that the implosion of one part of the world in the end is going to spread. Mm -hmm. And there's an old African saying, if your neighbor's house is on fire, your house is on fire. And in a, if you believe the world is a global village, then fire spreads. And it's a stretch to say national security from South Sudan comes to uh, the US. But look, northeast Nigeria, Boko Haram are affiliated to Daesh, yep. ISIS. Yep. And so you've got a more direct link there. And someone say, well, why should we care what goes on in northeast Nigeria? Well, there's a strategic interest, not just a moral interest. And I think that um, diplomacy will uh, leave a vacuum if if it's if if there aren't people to who are experts and are able to to do it and america does matter because the european um, external action service is building up slowly it's building up but it's not yet there to be the anchor in places like uh, south sudan and i think that it really does matter that america takes its diplomacy seriously and there's this mattis quote which i'm sure you've said you know if you don't spend on diplomacy i have to spend more on bullets right, right. and uh, he's basically right yeah you think we would listen to him? Well, he's in a very important position, and you're going to have a, an increase in the defense budget. But increasing that, uh, my argument would be defense and diplomacy and also development or humanitarian affairs all need to be aiming for a political settlement mm-hmm. in the countries of the world that are in trouble. Look, my learning from Iraq, from Afghanistan, but frankly also from Syria is that if you don't know what you're having a political transition to, no amount of military, diplomatic, or development effort is going to, in the end, hold the ring. You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. How do you feel that European attitudes towards refugees are at this moment? Because I think over here, we casual observers like myself, I mean, we feel like there's been a bit of whiplash. You had seemingly the rise of nationalist forces in the UK and Marine Le Pen in France. And then that seems to have maybe course corrected a bit, but I'm not sure where we are. I think Europeans like me, we shouldn't in the slightest bit be preening ourselves with our moral virtue. I think like here... The appropriate description is polarization. For every person who fears and loathes refugees or others, there's someone who's willing to say, well, hang on, this is my heritage and I want to stand up for it. And I was told yesterday that four out of five people on Facebook have got a refugee, who know a refugee by one connection. Hmm. Now, I think it's important that in Europe we do recognize that the victory of Emmanuel Macron, the strength of the two governing parties in Germany, the SPD and the CDU, the defeat of Wilders in the Netherlands, are a course correction, a reaction to Brexit and to the American election. But that doesn't mean that the fight's over. Right. I mean, Europe is still in a position where it's playing catch-up on the refugee crisis. There are still asylum claims from 2015-16 being processed in Germany. There are still 45,000 people in Greece trapped and not had their cases dealt with. So both on the policy front and the political front, there's work to be done in Europe. And as long as there are wars multiplying and raging in the Middle East and North Africa, look at the moment, there are people fleeing from Yemen to Somalia, for God's sake. <laughs> so as Europe's proximity to the Middle East and North Africa means that as long as those wars are multiplying and raging, it's always going to be on the front line. Right. I mean, do you think that what's happened in Syria has opened up something that we will not be able to? Is this a decades-long process now? I mean, I really fear so. The, 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 the Lebanese civil war went on for 15 years. The Syrian war, we're now in year seven. I think that the wounds are so deep. The ethnic and religious sorting, the religious sorting has been so great. Frankly, the expulsion of people, mm-hmm. five and a half million refugees out of the country, seven million internally displaced inside uh, Syria. It's hard to see Assad winning and gaining control of the whole country. Equally, it's hard to see how the country is going to be governed by him. Yeah, or what institutions will be left to be governed. Yeah, and the, and if you talk to people who've lost brothers, sisters, husbands in unspeakable killings, never mind chemical weapon attacks and barrel bombings, uh, they hate him with an absolute vengeance, and you can understand why. I also heard you talk about the role of climate change in exacerbating some of these crises. Can you talk about that? And is that an argument people should be making when they're pushing for climate change regulations or reforms? I mean, I I think one has to be cautious about talking about climate refugees for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution. Right. And so one of my jobs is to try and defend the integrity of the refugee, because although there are gray areas, you have to say that someone who is forced out of their country because their bakery in Damascus is bombed, has a different set of rights in international law and a different set of responsibilities applying to states than someone who wants to go and join their cousin because they want to go to university or have a better life. 
it's not that one is good and the other is bad, it's that they're different. So I think beware of a climate refugee. Secondly, I I think someone like Elizabeth Ferris, who's a real expert on the impact of climate on, on migration, would say, look, climate is unlikely to be a single causal factor. Climate may be an exacerbating factor. Mm-hmm. You use the word exacerbating. Sure. That's right. People can argue that the Syrian war, which we were just talking about, has its, some of its origins in the drought in the northwest of the country in 2008 to 2011, right, right. which led to a lot of urbanization and a lot of anger. And I think, though, one has to be careful about saying that climate on its own is a driver. What's evident is that climate change is already contributing to the incentives for people to move. If you talk to people in Niger, we've got staff in 30 countries, significant number of them undoubtedly affected by uh, climate change. And so I think it's part of the argument. Funny enough, I did a TED talk in uh, Vancouver this year, and Alf Gore was kind enough to listen to it. I saw him on the way out, and he said, good talk, but you didn't talk about climate. And it's a fair, you know, and then I said, well, I've only got 16 minutes, so <laughs> give, me a, give me a break. I tried to cover a lot, but it's a good point. That he's made. Right. It's got to be part of the narrative, but I, I would issue those two warnings about how we cleave towards it as mm-hmm. being an instant solution. Yeah, it's I in part raised it because I watched his movie last night, and he talks about climate as, as it relates to uh, Syria. I do think, you know, having sort of lived every moment of the Arab Spring and the initial hope and then the utter chaos since... There were a lot of factors at play there. My last question for you is, this is not an issue that you came to recently. I believe before you were born, uh, you cared about <laughs> refugees. Could you talk about a little about your family and personal so my, experience? So my dad was refugee from Belgium to Britain in 1940. Uh, my mom survived the war in Poland and came to Britain as a refugee in 1946. So the first refugees I ever knew were my parents. And uh, so at some level, this is uh, blood and spirit. And when I came to the International Rescue Committee in 2013, obviously there was a there were significant push factors from election defeats in the uh, UK in uh, the 2010 elections. But uh, there were three reasons, really. One, I thought the issues at the border of foreign policy and humanitarian policy were some of the most challenging questions. You know, how do you get education into parts of Afghanistan? How do you deliver humanitarian aid in Syria? How do you... Uh, negotiate your way through the the balance of values and independence and neutrality that exists in a uh, war situation. Uh, secondly, I thought that the IRC had potential to really be a leader of the humanitarian space because it's unique in being both a international aid organization and a refugee resettlement a- agency. But then uh, thirdly, some of my personal story felt I was closing a circle by doing something for not exactly my descendants today, but people who are suffering in a similar Way And I think that one of the things I've learned is that it's not very British, but you've got to be better to talk about how your own personal story fits mm-hmm. in. It, gives, it, it, it helps place people. And the great tragedy of the refugee crisis is it's so big and so complicated that people think nothing can be done. Right. And I always say to people in America, look, you can volunteer at your local IRC office because there's a refugee arriving today, even with the restrictions that are being uh, – actually, they're probably not arriving today because we're in the middle of the 120-day ban. But there, there would have been until sure, the Supreme sure. Court – and actually, those with a bona fide relationship, right. uh, which now includes grandparents. God help us that we're in a world where you have to prove <laughs> that a relationship with your grandparent counts as bona fide. So there are refugees arriving into the U.S. Your voice is needed. Your international humanitarian agencies are working overtime to try and narrow the gap between need and provision. And there's a battle on for what role Western countries play in the global system. And I think it's really important. If you care about social justice at home, you have to care about social justice abroad. And uh, that is something that I think needs to be argued for and, and fought for, because if you don't make the argument, you lose the argument. Yeah. David Milben, thank you so much for being on the show. The IRC is doing incredible work. Everyone should go to their website 
donate, support you guys, uh, support the broader coalition to stop this famine, whose name is escaping my tiny brain. The Global right Emergency Response Coalition. Global Emergency Response the Coalition. The IRC website is rescue.org. Rescue.org. I will tweet them all. They will be in the description of the episode. And thank you again. Thank you very much. morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.